You're listening to Michelle Redfern and Mel Butcher on Lead to Soar, bringing you the best leadership advice and mentorship from around the world. Learn more at leadtosoar.com. I'm joined today by Dr. Adia Harvey-Wingfield, a researcher and academic at Washington University. Dr. Wingfield, welcome to Lead to Soar. Thank you. It's great to be here. Please share with us just a little bit about your expertise and what your research topics focus on at Washington University. Sure. Most of my research focuses on racial and gender inequality in different professions and occupations. And that's led me to look at Black workers in a variety of different fields, ranging from medicine to law to engineering to finance all over the map to try to get a better understanding of why and how we continue to see racial and gender inequality persist and why Black workers are so underrepresented in so many of these professions. For our listeners here, we're primarily going to talk about some themes that have come out of your new book, Gray Areas. And I want to emphasize on the experience of Black women at work today. So my questions today are going to go through several major topic areas. We'll start with culture and then DEI programs what's not working and what to do instead. And then I want to wrap up on some specifics about the Black women experience and work today in America. So starting at the top, tell us how you're defining gray areas and what do organizational leaders need to understand about this concept? Yeah, that's a great question. And that's a, really at the core of the book. When I talk about gray areas, this represents my attempt, as I said before, to try to understand why we continue to see racial and gender inequality, particularly racial inequality, so persistent when seemingly we've made so much progress. We're over 50 years after the Civil Rights Act of 1964. The diversity industry is a booming industry that's a multi-billion dollar one. But yet we still know that Black workers experience a lot of discrimination at the point of hire. They're likely to stall out at middle management levels. And they're pretty significantly underrepresented in leadership roles and virtually all industries. And so all of my work in one way or another has been focused on trying to understand how both those things can be true. And what I argue in gray areas is that we can explain those inequalities, not necessarily by focusing on explicit overt legal discrimination. That's illegal now, right? We don't live in a society anymore where people can legally discriminate against people based on work. But when I talk about the gray areas, those are the more ambiguous parts of work. Those are the social parts, the cultural parts, the relational parts of how we work that aren't necessarily subject to regulation and oversight. And by virtue of that, are room for a lot of inequality to persist because they are more about the social dynamics of how we are working. Can you give us maybe an example or two of a gray area? The way that I think about this is when I think about my own job, I'm a college professor. And so my job requires research, teaching, and service, sometimes a lot of service. <laughs> but essentially, if you look at my job contract, it requires me to do research, teaching, and service for the university. What it doesn't specify is the importance of making connections with colleagues both inside and outside the university that could potentially write recommendation letters for me or who could be references for me if I wanted to pursue other opportunities. What my job contract doesn't specify is the importance of understanding the organizational culture here at WashU and making sure that I have a clear sense of what the norms and values of the organization are so that I can 
and act in a way that's consistent with those. What my job contract doesn't specify is that if I want to advance, it's really critical to make sure that I have relationships with people who are higher up in the organizational hierarchy, who could potentially mention me as a possible candidate for certain jobs and who could be a reference for me and who could put my name forward as somebody who would be a good fit for various opportunities in the leadership structure. And so that's what I talk about when I mention the gray areas of work. These are the connections that we have to make, the relationships that we have to forge, the organizational cultures that we have to navigate that, again, aren't ever going to be listed in a job contract, but are increasingly becoming a more and more central part of how we work, even if we aren't specifying that aspect of our work. So to bring it down to maybe a level where we're not all working in academia, but that doesn't mean this doesn't translate. So one of the examples that I really appreciated you bringing to light is that jobs are often found through social networks. And this often inadvertently excludes Black women and other people from underrepresented groups. So this idea that we have a meritocracy is not really true. And we see it unfold in in ways like this, where it's, I like the word you used earlier, it's ambiguous, right? You can't always see it happening. Okay, so let's talk about culture. There's a bunch of different aspects about culture in your book. Help us understand how does colorblind culture downplay and ignore race and racial differences? That's a great question. And it's a bit it might seem counterintuitive because we have this narrative in U.S. society that colorblindness is what we want to strive to work towards in many cases, that we want to be a place where anyone can advance and that their racial identity shouldn't be a factor in how they advance or whether they advance, right? So on the face of it, it seems really laudable to try to move towards this colorblind narrative and this colorblind ideal. But what I found in my research is that often we get a little bit ahead of ourselves with moving in that direction. And what happens when organizations take on this colorblind approach approach is that they frequently become unable to either identify or rectify the challenges that Black workers still continue to face in these organizational spaces that are directly linked to race and racial inequality. So one of the examples that I like to give here is from Constance, who a professor of chemical engineering that I spoke to for the book. And she describes working in academia like me, which I think is really interesting because academia has this reputation as being this very liberal progressive, forward-thinking space where we're just all consumed with diversity and critical race theory and all that stuff to whether that's accurate or not is probably another discussion. But academia has this reputation as being this liberal, forward-thinking space. And Constance, in fact, worked in this environment where her university's website was very clear about their commitment to diversity. They had several senior administrators who were committed to diversity and very focused on those goals. But what Constance found in her department was that that focus on diversity translated into a very colorblind focus on diversity that emphasized gender diversity and didn't really talk about or address race. And so what that meant in practice was that when Constance's department decided that they wanted to diversify, they focused on gender. They hired a number of white and Asian women pretty much in one year because they wanted to emphasize their focus on diversity. And that's important. Engineering is a field where women of all races are underrepresented. But what that meant for Constance was that the experience of being a Black woman in particular and the racial challenges that she encountered in that space of students who would suggest that she didn't understand her own research or colleagues who shunned her when they saw her off campus and outside of the work environment or in some cases, very 
openly racist teaching evaluations that she received from students. The department had no framework to be able to deal with and address those issues because they were so committed to a colorblind focus that allowed them to talk about gender diversity, but not racial diversity. Yeah, it almost sounds like an exercise in in checking the box. So I want to ask you about the typologies, because I think some of the language there might come up in some of the other things we'll talk about. So in gray areas, you mentioned four typologies of corporate culture, clan culture, adhocracy culture, hierarchy culture, and market culture. Could you just briefly explain these and why the typologies matter? Sure. So if we talk about clan culture, the idea here is that the organizational culture is one where workers should feel like they're a family. They make decisions collaboratively and collectively, and people are really trying to find consensus to get along and move ahead. If we're talking about market-based culture, it's a culture based on market outcomes and making decisions that will maximize market returns. Hierarchy culture is very heavily structured by existing rules and norms, and workers are really expected to operate within those existing rules to make decisions and gain outputs. And adhocracy culture is a bit more freewheeling. It's more of the move fast and break things culture that we might associate with startups and tech companies. And the idea there is to be innovative and think outside the box and challenge existing rules and norms. And the reason why I include those four types of corporate cultures is one, they're kind of a longstanding existing framework for thinking about organizational culture. But I wanted to show that regardless of the type of organizational culture we're talking about, what I found in many cases for Black workers, again, is that often those organizational cultures are based on assumptions that don't include Black workers' realities. So just by way of example, if we are talking about an organizational culture that's hierarchical, it might be easy and tempting to assume, well, if there's a strict hierarchy in place and some people are at the top of the hierarchy, you get a Black person in the top of that hierarchy and they're good. That is not what I found. There are some interviews that I include in the book with Max, an emergency medicine doctor, who worked in a hierarchical structure, but still encountered patients who told him that they wouldn't allow him to treat them and that they would only be treated by a white doctor. And they told him that point blank to his face and were very explicit about it. So I think it's really important to include all of those types of corporate culture because they underscore that at their core, Again, these corporate cultures are not constructed or devised with Black workers' experiences and consequently leave many Black workers really struggling to fit in and thrive at these environments. Right. It's like there's not even space to acknowledge a problem and address it. Let's switch a little bit here to DEI programs. So based on your research, help us understand the real limitations of mandated diversity training why it usually doesn't work and just how it's not really improving the outcomes for Black women and other underrepresented people. Yeah, that's so important. And again, that often seems shocking and counterintuitive, I think, because we are immersed in this culture where we do have so much, at least talk about diversity, right? And diversity training and programming is so commonplace. And many companies do mandate it. They require people to do webinars or complete seminars or attend workshops or what have you. But what the data show pretty conclusively is that mandated DEI trainings are not getting the job done. They do not increase the numbers of women or underrepresented people of color in leadership roles. In fact, they often do the opposite and they often depress those numbers. And the data show that there are a few reasons why. 
We know that for white workers, mandated DEI training can often make them feel resentful. They feel as if they are being blamed, rightfully or wrongly, for things that are outside of their control. They feel as if the organization is suggesting that they are at fault and that they are being warned of potentially litigious behavior and that they are being told that they are making mistakes and that they are essentially racist people who are messing things up. Perhaps counterintuitively, I've also found that for Black workers, mandated DEI trainings are less than optimal. And it's not because they think that diversity doesn't matter. It's because they suspect that organizations are engaging in these mandated trainings as an exercise in regulatory compliance. In other words, they're doing this because they feel as if they have to, to avoid getting sued. In many cases, research shows that that's not really that far off. But I find that Black workers don't really feel convinced that mandated DEI training is designed or intended to address the very real issues that they experience that I try to describe in gray areas. So we know that these mandated trainings don't work, but we also know that there's a lot of things that organizations can do differently that does work. And I think that's one of the exciting things about doing research at this time period is that we actually have data about what works better. So mandated diversity trainings don't work, but instituting diversity task forces, by contrast, is shown to yield better results, especially when those task forces are pulled from people who are at all levels of the organization, and they are tasked with identifying problems, but also finding solutions. And so part of the difference there is that people aren't necessarily feeling as if they're being blamed. They're also not necessarily feeling as if the work is just for show. They are tasked with identifying a problem, but they are also tasked with finding solutions to that problem. And when the organization pulls in people who are at multiple levels of the organizational structure, everybody has a say, and it feels more like everybody's project than simply some consultant coming in from outside and making a workshop and then going back to their the rest of their day. Yeah. Okay. I want to pull on a couple threads here. So starting with diversity task force, what does this need to look like to work? And in particular, how does this differ from something like a employee resource group or a business resource group? So employee resource groups are a little bit different. What those are intended to do are to pull together workers who may share a common interest and offer them a space where they can find support, camaraderie, networks and resources among themselves. So you might find employee resource groups of Black workers, of veterans, of women, of LGBTQ workers, and so forth. But those are not necessarily the same as the task forces that I've described, because again, those are groups that are coalesced around an idea of a common shared identity. A diversity task force, however, would pull together people from all of those groups, people from different levels in the organization. So people who are senior leaders, people who are entry-level workers, people who are in the middle, people of different racial backgrounds, gender backgrounds, and so forth, with the idea being that they would really take a close survey of the organization, identify where there are disparities. Are there disparities in hiring? Are there disparities? Are people stalling out at middle management level? Are there indications that people who are underrepresented are less likely to have access to mentoring. And once those issues are identified, the diversity task force can put into place recommendations based on their knowledge of an understanding of how the organization operates. And the data show that that's what actually works a lot better. What we haven't stated super explicitly is that there are these different levels of things to address. Are we getting people in the door that represent the community around us and the community that we serve, but then do they have the conditions that they need to thrive and to advance in their career? Okay, one of the other strategies that you mentioned in the book as being effective for organizations is implementing mentoring programs. And this is one that I, I want to ask you to talk about more. From my own experience, I've seen some mentoring programs not 
done so well. In the engineering world, I've seen it attempted in several different ways. Often a company will bring in an outside company to come in and like set up a program, right? And they'll do these random matchings and it can be really difficult to get matched with someone that you feel comfortable with and that maybe really wants to help you. There's also that added layer of biases coming into play with how a mentor mentors you. I think we've seen from research that there's a difference between how men and women are mentored. So help us understand, help the organizational leaders listening to this understand what does an effective mentoring program look like? So what we've found in the research, and mine and colleagues of mine who've done a lot more work on this as well, is that often mentoring programs fall short if they are not kind of structured by the organization. They fall short if they are invitation only, or they fall short if they are left to happen organically and by happenstance. And again, it might seem like those would be strategies that work, right? You might think to yourself, well, sure, HR is in a position where they can identify high performers and target those as people in the company who really belong in a mentoring program. Or you might think, well, you know, just let mentoring happen the way that it happens. And that's how the best results end up occurring. (laughs) Research shows that that's not actually accurate, right? And there are a few reasons for that. When HR managers and other leaders select out people who are high performers for mentoring programs, Those are likely people who would have access to or be able to develop those resources anyway. When mentoring programs are left to occur organically and just happen on their own, often what happens is that people get overlooked, whether incidentally or through bias or what have you. So the research indicates for these reasons that when mentoring programs are put into place internally by people in the organization and people are matched with others in the company, and critically, this often means matching them with people that they otherwise would not know about or would not kind of have on their radar or wouldn't instinctively select as their mentees, what ends up happening is something that occurs on both sides. People who are the mentees are likely to sign up because they have a genuine interest in being mentored. And we know that Black workers are disproportionately more likely to sign up for these types of mentoring programs because often they are under-mentored or under-sponsored. But even more, or equally critically on the other side, what happens for mentors are that they are often exposed to workers in the organization that are hungry, that are motivated, that are talented, that are really hardworking, that they had no exposure to before. And we also know that self-interest plays in a little bit to this too, right? If I'm assigned a mentee, I want my mentee to do well because that quite frankly makes me look good, right? It doesn't make me look great to sponsor someone and have a mentee who isn't shining and isn't succeeding. So we know that setting these programs up internally and making sure that they do have internal resources and support again, but also making sure that they're structured in a way that anybody who wants to participate in the program has access to the program actually helps to offset some of the biases that can creep in when these programs are left to operate on their own or when they have oversight in terms of being invited only programs. That is where we also start to see, like I said, some problems seep in in terms of who gets included and who doesn't. Question on the hiring process. So you recommend eliminating hiring and skills tests. Help us understand that. Right. So basically, this goes back to research also, which documents that managers often are more likely to differentially apply the results of hiring and skills tests. It might seem that these standardize and level the playing field, but we also know that they reduce managers' discretion and put managers in a position where they are more likely to attach 
negative weight to the outcomes of these tests. If adverse responses come from Black workers, they're more likely to assign more weight to those responses than they are if adverse responses come from white workers. Ultimately, they don't necessarily standardize the playing field as much as they introduce another tool that then limit managers' discretion and put them in a position where they are more likely to differentially identify and focus on the outcomes of those tests. So for those reasons, the research suggests that's not an optimal best practice. Okay, so in quick review here, diversity task forces have been shown to work. They need to have people from all different levels and they need to have backing to go forth and solve problems, not just talk about them. Thoughtful mentoring programs can do a lot to help with equalizing advancement. And it's no surprise here. I mean, I feel like we've seen a lot of research about standardized tests for colleges not really serving us well. And likewise, these hiring and skills tests don't serve us well in the corporate world either. I want to ask you to talk about leaders who are ready to move forward. What about the taboo of discussing race and racism openly in the workplace? Any recommendations to approach this and be head on? Yeah, that's an interesting one, because when we look at the specific policies that talk about how people advance in workplace in workplaces, what you'll find is that a lot of those are not explicitly race conscious. Like, for example, I just discussed mentoring programs for all. Those are programs that are open to everybody that allow anyone and everyone to participate. Those aren't programs that are exclusive to Black workers. We also know that research documents that work organizations that indicate flexibility around scheduling and work family policy are ones that are more likely to have higher responses and high, excuse me, higher ratings and more improvement when it comes to Black workers moving into management and leadership positions. Those aren't explicitly race conscious either. So the data does suggest that when we're talking about specific policies that work, we can actually get a lot of traction out of policies that aren't explicitly designed to focus on race and reducing racial inequalities. But I think we also want to think about the organizational culture where workers are employed, especially if we were talking about Black workers. And the reality is for many Black workers that being in organizational spaces that insist on this race-blind narrative doesn't also really do much for them in terms of their ability, like I said before, to, even though this is an overused phrase, kind of bring their whole selves to work. The reality of being a Black worker in today's society and in every society is that there are different experiences. There are ways in which organizational cultures are blind to those experiences. So I do think that if we're talking about specific policy, yes, we can get a lot of traction out of race neutral ones that have been shown to have some effectiveness. But if we are also going to talk about the realities of what Black workers experience, whether it's cases like Max, who I described, the emergency medicine doctor who had patients who were explicitly racist and telling him that they wouldn't let him treat them, that they only wanted a white doctor, or whether it's experiences of people like Constance, who I mentioned before, who had explicitly racist teaching evaluations. I don't see how there's a way to address those types of issues if we are not also talking about the reality that those are issues that are going to be present for Black workers and companies and that companies have to be prepared to address that. Okay, I want to go to advancement here. And I've got a bit of a preamble, so (laughs) bear with me. In the book, you have this wonderful passage that aligns really directly with what we teach and talk about in Lead to Soar. So in gray areas, you give some sad statistics for the state of Black people represented in high-level leadership, essentially that there are more white men named David and John working as CEOs of large companies than there are large companies run by Black CEOs of any gender or name. And I want to read a direct quote right after that. 
companies often explain these disparities by pointing to leaks in the pipeline or an inability to find qualified candidates to assume top roles. But there are problems with both of these explanations. For one thing, Stanford Business School researchers found that Black workers are rarely put in charge of divisions likely to yield a profit and loss, though these are often training grounds for how managers end up on the track to become CEOs. So this aligns so well with the foundation of Lead to Soar and what we teach because we found really similar things in our research, which is that women are not effectively mentored in the skill sets of business strategic and financial acumen. And they are not shepherded the same way that men are into those strategic roles where they would pick them up, just like you described. So I just want to ask you to expound on this and what this means for the challenges that Black women face to advancement. If you start kind of from the data and work backwards, what we know is that the data for Black women in leadership are pretty abysmal. Black women are probably about 6.5% of the population of the U.S. They are not 6% of those who are in leadership roles. Even if we are not talking about corporate settings, if we were talking about what we might think of as prestigious white-collar work, Black women are about 3% of doctors. That is half of their presence in the U.S. population. They are, I want to say about three-ish percent of all lawyers, and those numbers might be even a little bit lower than that. Ultimately, they aren't represented across the board in high-status jobs, period. There, I think, I want to say about three percent of full professors in academia as well. So in industry after industry, if you look at what the data is showing us about where Black women are represented, they're pretty consistently underrepresented. If we are talking about corporate settings, that is probably where the numbers are are the worst. So we can work backwards from that and think about why. Why is it that we see those outcomes where Black women are underrepresented? Is it because they just simply are not interested in leadership roles? Again, we have data and data says no, <laughs> that's far from the case. Black women are actually more likely than women of other races to express their interest in moving into high-ranking leadership roles. They are more likely to express confidence in their capabilities to succeed in those roles and they are more likely to express ambition and an interest in high salaries. So then is it that we can make the argument that Black women lack the qualifications? No, data <laughs> doesn't support that either, right? There's a study from about 2019, I think, that shows that graduates from Harvard Business School who were Black were still more likely to be passed over for corporate leadership roles than their white counterparts. And I think it's hard to make a case that workers coming out of Harvard Business School are somehow unqualified for leadership roles in business schools. And that's just simply one example from one particular school. But again, this is consistent with data that indicates that Across the board, when we are looking at qualifications, when we are looking at interests, we are finding that Black workers and Black women workers specifically have all of those things. What they don't have often are, again, the relationships with people who are willing to guide them forward into these types of leadership roles. What they often do not have, the informal networks of people where they have these close connections and longstanding ties with people who are able to serve in these mentoring roles and alert them to potential positions that are opening up and let them know about opportunities that are coming down the pike. These are the areas where structural barriers put into place challenges that are particularly present for, even though not exclusive 
exclusively, but particularly present for Black women. So just working backwards from the data that shows the underrepresentation is present, we know that underrepresentation isn't for a lack of skilled, interested, talented, motivated Black women who want to move into leadership roles. What we do know is that there are structural barriers, some of which I describe in gray areas that are more socially driven, more culturally driven, and more relationally driven that present added impediments to moving into those types of roles. Can you give us an example of a company that's taking on gray areas and seeing success and maybe tell us a little bit about the outcomes that this creates for Black women? Sure. So I talk about this a little bit in the conclusion. I mentioned three companies with varying degrees of success that have tried to address some aspects of what we've talked about. For example, I mentioned Google in particular as a company that tried to address the social aspects of gray areas in terms of people moving into particular jobs and started trying to form partnerships with historically black colleges and universities as a way of improving the numbers of black workers that were being recruited for entry-level positions. And I don't think that if you look at Google's own work, they would necessarily count that as a success. But I think the challenges with that program had to do more with some, as they described, some internal challenges and maintaining consistent support for that program internally within Google. What we do know from data and research, again, is that companies that do set up uh, long-term robust recruitment programs with historically Black colleges and universities can do a better job improving their numbers of hiring at those early entry-level positions. So Google is one example of a company that tried this but did not necessarily maintain the internal support to keep this type of programming going over the long term. I also referenced GV, a venture capital firm, And the words of their diversity and inclusion officer who does talk about explicit steps to try to change the organizational culture within that firm. And a lot of the steps that diversity officer recommends are consistent with, again, what we know from existing research of trying to create a space where attention to race and racial inequality becomes a core focus in the business and the business model, rather than trying to adopt this colorblind approach that allows organizations to ignore or overlook the challenges and experiences that Black workers within are facing. And then finally, I talk a little bit about Coca-Cola as a third example of a company that for a long time had seen some really consistent long-term improvement in terms of advancement, particularly for Black women into leadership roles. I think at press time when the book came out, or when I submitted the final version of the book, Coca-Cola may have had about 15 or 16 Black women moving into vice president roles in the company, which is a pretty enviable statistic that many companies cannot similarly boast. I do know that they had seen some changes to those numbers after 2020 and the pandemic started to restructure and affect the way that many companies were able to maintain these initiatives, which suggests, in my view, the importance of maintaining consistency and making sure that the drive for an interest in maintaining these programs doesn't wane. But these are some examples of companies that I talk about where we've seen them try to adopt approaches to addressing these gray areas, again, with varying degrees of success. I want to go back to Constance and her experience. So she's a chemical engineer who's also happens to be in academia. But can you expound on her experience of having all of these credentials and awards and not getting commensurate recognition and basically support to advance? Yeah, I think that question of support to advance is such a critical part of Constance's story. She mentioned a little bit about the organizational culture where she worked and how that became such a a challenge for her. Um, And it just, it served to be a really isolating factor for Constance, particularly as she thought about and tried to plot an approach towards uh, leadership and advancement. 
one of the frustrations for Constance was that when it came time to get promoted, she couldn't get feedback. She couldn't get support. She couldn't get information about what she needed to do. Her colleagues would just say, you're not ready yet. And when she would say, okay, so what do I need to do to be ready? What are some things that I can do to move in that direction? She didn't get answers. She got nothing straightforward. She got stonewalling, obfuscation, and a complete lack of clarity. So essentially, she kind of bided her time. She continued to work hard, winning awards, getting external funding, doing research, doing all the things that she thought that she was supposed to do that no one would clarify that was correct. She eventually did get a promotion to full professor, which is the final rank in the academic tenure trajectory. But Constance is ambitious. She also wanted to try to take on leadership roles in engineering and School of Engineering where she was employed, but those also were met with a lot of the same types of challenges that she experienced in her earlier stages of her her career. She would lean in and expressly indicate that she was interested in leadership roles and to try to ask what she could do to move into leadership roles. She would ask people to work with her, to be her advocate, to give her feedback on how she could improve. And time after time, Constance consistently got shut down. Her luck finally changed at one point when the university made an external hire for someone whose field was a bit tangential to and adjacent to hers, but closely enough that there were some similarities and overlaps in the work that they were doing. And so she was able to develop a relationship with this particular colleague that she found really helpful in widening some opportunities for leadership and significant roles outside of the university because of this colleague's recommendations and that person's support and the leadership that person had in industry. But when it came to opportunities in the university, again, with Constance, it just simply remained this uphill battle where we have an example of what I was talking about before, this motivated, hungry, super smart, interested, very focused person who's really striving for these opportunities for career advancement and mobility, but keeps finding doors shut in her face every time she tries to move in that direction. Based on not just Constance, but other organizations you've researched, what do leaders often miss? What are they often not seeing when they're going on some DEI journey? And what does that, in your opinion, imply for how they need to wake up? I mean, I think in a lot of cases, what leaders miss when it comes to DEI is a full and comprehensive understanding of the experiences of different groups in their workforces and their workplaces and how particularly given that we know there's a lot of homogeneity among leadership, right? And like I said, in many industries, leadership tends to be white men. I think many white men may miss how different their experiences are from many Black women in these companies and from many other underrepresented workers in these companies. I think they may not see how much the connections that they have matter and the networks that they have matter in ways that are exclusive to and leave out women of all races and Black women in particular. I think they may not see the ways in which everyday experiences being doubted, dismissed, ignored, shut down, condescended to really have an implication for trying to navigate those work environments. I think they may not be aware of how much it matters to have a sponsor and a mentor who can tell you, you know, here's a position that's going to be opening up. I think you'd be a good fit for it. I'm going to put your name in. I think it may not obviously be self-evident to many of those leaders. And all the points that I just mentioned, just by way of contrast, there's another worker that I recount in the book, Darren, who's a Black man who's a vice president at a financial company. All of those things that I described not being present were present for Darren in ways that really allowed him to advance in the company. So I think it goes to show that when companies are aware of and try to put into place strategies and approaches to offset those types of issues, 
it can work and it can yield some really different outcomes, but it has to be a step that companies take and it has to be something done at the initiative of leadership and provided with resources for these types of changes to really occur. Thank you for that. So kind of wrapping us up here, do you have any thoughts that you want to share for any Black women listening today? I think that ties back to one of the main objectives I had in writing gray areas. It's a book that obviously I hope will be read widely. And I it's a book that I hope will be really informative for many readers. My hope is that for readers who are not Black, they'll take a look at the book and think, oh, so this is what many of my coworkers' experiences have been. How can I do something to help address and change this. For people who are in leadership roles, I hope they'll read the book and think, okay, I'm learning a lot more about my workforce, but here are also some concrete solutions I can put into place to try to address these. But for Black readers and Black women readers, a big hope of mine in writing this book was that they'll see themselves reflected in it and think, okay, this wasn't all in my head. This was really happening to me this whole time. All these things that I thought might have been going on, all these things that I suspected were strange and not quite right. This is all real. And not only is it all real, it's all systemic. And this is all part of what happens to Black workers and Black women workers in the workplace. It's not just me. I wasn't just fabricating this. This is all very common. It's very real. And it's very documented by a lot of research to show that this is part of a much bigger pattern than something that just happens to me. So I really hope that for Black women listening to this or hopefully reading gray areas, that it'll really serve as a validation of what they have been experiencing and what they have been struggling with and what they have been trying to cope with in their workplaces, regardless of what those workplaces are. Dr. Wingfield, where can people find you and your book? The book is available anywhere books are sold. Barnes & Noble, if you patronize a local independent bookseller, if you patronize Amazon, any of those places you can find find the book. You can find me either at my website, adiaharveywingfield.com, or on X at Adia H. Wingfield or on Facebook at Adia Wingfield. Awesome. Thank you so much for sharing time with me for this discussion. Thank you so much for having me. It's been such a pleasure. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Lead to Soar. We sincerely appreciate your honest, positive reviews. You can leave questions at leadtosoar.com for Michelle and Mel to answer on future episodes. Until next time, we hope you'll use what you've learned here and lead to soar.